You're listening to a podcast from the Media Ministry of Faithway Baptist Church. This is Pastor Barney Schwenke. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. If you have any questions about our church or about Jesus Christ, we'd love to answer those. Please reach out to us. You can find our contact information on our website. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message. Second Timothy chapter 4 is where we are at today. And uh, we are going to be studying this passage of Scripture. We only have one more time together in the book of Second Timothy. Now, many of you remember the introduction to 2 Timothy as we talked about this several months ago, but this is Paul's last letter before he faces the executioner's sword. And if I had something that I was going to write to my family, there's a lot of things I probably would want to say if I knew that my death was imminent. And this is exactly what is going on in Paul's letter to 2 Timothy. You know, if I were to put together what I wanted my family to know right before I died, I don't know what it would say, but it would be probably something along the lines of what Paul wrote in verses 1 through 5, our text, our passage of Scripture this morning. But before we get into that, I want to share with you just a couple of people's famous last words, some famous people, the last thing that they said before they died. Napoleon, he wrote this, he said, the day before he died, he said, I die before my time. He died young. And my body will be given to the earth to become food for the worms. Such is the fate that will soon await the great Napoleon. Now that's a word of encouragement, isn't it? My body will become worm food. Um, I, I would say that it probably was a, a word of regret. You probably heard of Gandhi. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi wrote, he said this, my days, or he said this right before he died, my days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long, perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slew of despond. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light. Well, he never found that light, unfortunately. If someone tells the story of right up until the last day, they shared the gospel with Gandhi and he rejected it outright. The Bible tells us that light is only found in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes to the Father but by me. Well, this morning in Acts, I'm sorry, in 2 um, Timothy chapter number 4, we are going to see how the Apostle Paul finishes his life. Now, we have the history of the early church recorded in the book of Acts. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. My dad, I uh, was up last week, if you were here, you know I wasn't here. Um, my dad, is, uh, they live up in New Hampshire, and the church that he goes to, they have a, it's an inner city ministry in downtown Manchester, New Hampshire. And the people that come to that church are not the, I wouldn't say they're upper middle class, they're not middle class, they are the, the drug addicts, they're former prostitutes, they're people who come in off the streets who are desperate. And that's the church that my dad and mom are a part of. And my dad has been discipling a group of people. He takes them through a basic course on how to know more about God. And he sat down with some guys that had just trusted Christ as their Savior a week or two ago. And he's sitting down with these two guys, Brian and I forget the name of the other guy. And they were at a table, and my dad's like, hey, come on down with me. I'd love to just to see what I do. And I've never heard my dad teach before. He was always doing different things when I was growing up. He was a, a Christian businessman, and, but he always was involved in the church. And he's like, I want you to see this class that I'm teaching. I want you to work with these guys and just be there, observe it. And so I sat down in his class, and Brian and his friend, who had just trusted Christ as their Savior, they had never owned their own Bible. And my dad gave them the first Bible that they've ever held in their hands. And they opened it up, and my dad is walking them through the basics of what a Bible is. And he takes them through, and he says, Now, in the very beginning of the Bible, we have the Old Testament, and in the back part, we have the New Testament. Now, most of us would say, Yeah, I understand that I've known that since I was a kid in Sunday school, right? But these guys were blown away. Brian said, Old and New Testament, oh, that makes sense. 
He said, I always thought the Old Testament and the New Testament were two different Bible versions. I mean, that's the, that's the type of lack of Bible knowledge that these kids had, these guys had. They, they, they were looking at the Bible for the first time, and God just started opening up their eyes. And they were just soaking in the lesson that my dad was teaching them about the importance of reading the Bible every day. And you know, when you open up God's Word, I hope you understand today that it is God's love letter to you. And in the book of Acts, we have the history of the local church as it gets started. So Acts is a history book of the church for the first 30 years of its existence. And we know from the book of Acts that Paul was confined in house arrest in the, in the city of Rome, there in Italy. We believe that after he was in house arrest, he was released... And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but we know from what we believe history that after he was released from that house arrest in Rome, that he made one final missionary journey where he went to Ephesus, Macedonia, Crete, and a few other places where he was finally rearrested and taken back to Rome four years later. Well, in AD 64, Nero burns down Rome. You probably remember that story. And when Nero burned down Rome, he was looking for a scapegoat to blame it on. And so who did he blame? He blamed the Christians. And at that time, when Rome was burning, Paul was in what we call the Mamertine Prison. You can still go to Rome today and you can find the Mamertine Prison. It's a pretty cool place to visit. It's a hole in the wall, essentially. Back in those days, it was nothing more than just a sewage pit, essentially, is what it was. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 11, if you want to look down there, here's Paul and he is in this pit. And he says there in verse number 11, only Luke is with me. So he's all by himself. Here's the great Apostle Paul, the one who started multiple churches, led people to Christ. He's done some amazing things for God. And at the end of his days, just prior to his death, he's all alone in a sewage pit in, in the city of Rome. And he writes this letter, 2 Timothy chapter number 4, to Timothy. Who's Timothy? Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. Um, if I use that phraseology, don't think that Paul was older necessarily than Timothy, even though he was. Son in the faith simply means that Paul introduced Timothy to Jesus. He said, Timothy, this is Christ. Maybe he led him to God. I don't know exactly the story. The Bible doesn't tell us. But Paul discipled. He trained Timothy. Therefore, he called him his son in the faith. And these are Paul's last words, just moments before he was going to be headed and be led out of the city where he would lose his head for the sake of the gospel. There's a book that if you've never read it before, you need to get a copy of it. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And i got to warn you, this is not a book that you'd want to read right before you go to bed because there's some interesting things in that book. But the, that book tells us the story of many of the apostles. And here in Fox's Book of Martyrs, it talks about Paul, his last days. Paul the apostle, who was called Saul after his great travail and unspeakable labors in promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, suffered also in this first, first persecution under Nero. Abidus declared that under his execution, Nero sent two of his esquires, two guys by the name of Ferga and Parthenius, to bring him word of his death. And after, um, and they coming to Paul, instructing the people, desired him to pray for them that they might believe, who told them shortly after that they should believe and be baptized at his sepulcher. This done, the soldiers came and they, they took, came to the place of execution where Paul was. And after Paul said his prayers, he gave, he gave his neck to the sword. Now, I want us to understand that these are, this is the account of the Apostle Paul, the great man of God, right before he died. And I don't want us to forget what we just read about the last moments of Paul's life, how he preached the gospel and he prayed, and then his, then his head was cut off by the sword. Because when we get to the end of the message today, I'm going to tie all that in. So don't forget what we just read there. But Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. 
And as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, what he is doing is instructing him on the need for doctrinal purity. If you look at your text, if you have your Bible with you, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, see what it says there? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All, all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Doctrinal purity is very important. Apparently, there were some people in the church there in Ephesus that were promoting a false gospel. And so Paul is going, to, is going to basically tell Timothy, I want you to live a life with no regrets, and this is how you live this life. Faithway family, can I say this this morning? At the end of your days, my prayer is that you will be able to look at God in the face when you stand before him and say, I have no regrets about how I live my life. I finished the course, I kept the faith, I ended my job here on this earth with joy. And you can do it by the grace of God. I want you to notice verse number one of chapter four. Look what Paul says. He's talking to Timothy. I charge thee, Timothy, right? Therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick, the word quick there we'll see means the alive and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom. The word charge there means to testify. It means to solemnly affirm. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, let me give you a challenge. Let me instruct you. Let me give you a, a final challenge from me to you. This is what you ought to do. As I mentioned earlier, that word quick there means to be alive. It means to breathe, to be among the living. So it's something that is not dead. Verse number one says that God will judge the quick, the alive, and the dead. Can I just remind you this morning that every single one of us will stand before God one day? Both the living and the dead, both the Jew and the Gentile, both the believer and the unbeliever, all will stand before the God of this universe one day. Now the Bible tells us that as Christians, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you will not stand before God and, that, and you will not stand before him to be punished for your sins because Jesus paid that punishment. For believers, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 that when we stand before him, it's going to be a, a, a judgment on how we lived our life once we've been saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse number 9, Paul says, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absence we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Christian, can I encourage you this morning? Don't lose sight of the goal. What is the goal? We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You can brush that off this morning and say, well, it's just the pastor getting up there and, you know, just yelling for a little bit and talking. To me. No, you will. You have a date with God. The moment you pass away, you will stand before him one day. And so, my friend, when you stand before God, what will you say for yourself? Paul says, Timothy... I charge you, you will stand before God one day at the judgment seat. The word judgment there in, in, in that passage of scripture means the judgment seat of God is the word bima. You may have heard that before if you've been around our church, the bima seat. Now, that's the Greek word for judgment. And the bima seat was a place in Paul's day where judges in local cities, they would go to the gates of the city and the judge would sit in an elevated seat and people would bring lawsuits and they would bring criminal charges against one another. And the judge would sit on the bema seat and he would judge the cases that were brought before him. But the word bema was also used in a different context. The word bema was used during the Olympics of the ancient games in Athens. 
where the judge would decide who won the marathon, who won the wrestling competition, and he would give them a wreath as a symbol of the fact that they won. And so the word bima can be used either way. I want you to see what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14. He said, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, Paul says, leave the judging to God. I know it can be very easy in a church like ours to say, well, they don't look the way that we look. They don't act the way that, they act, that we act. They don't have a big Bible when they walk into church, right? I don't know what you're, how you judge, but all of us do, whether we realize it or not. We judge other people based on appearances or based on things that come out of their mouth, whatever it might be. And Paul says here, leave the judging to God. Now, there is a time that we need to judge right and wrong. Well, we could talk about that some other time from Matthew chapter number 7. But Paul here in this passage of Scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he gives the people an idea of what it will be like when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, I told you, you have a date with God. You will stand before him one day. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this is what it's going to be like. Now, he says, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. Before we go to the next verse, that verse right there. If any man build the foundation. In other words, Paul is saying, the life that you are living right now, you are laying a foundation. And the foundation that you are laying is every single day, moment by moment, when you go to work, when you're at home, when you're with your kids, every moment of your day, you are laying different elements to your foundation. Either gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm praying that my life would be one of gold, silver, and precious stones. Why? Because the next verse says that every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day will declare it. That simply means that word manifest means to be made alive. God will reveal the foundation that you are laying to the world. So you may think right now that I'm, no one knows about the secret sin that I have. No one knows the, the foundation that I am laying in private because I keep it hidden very well. Nobody knows. God knows. And one day this verse says that God, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, I've heard a lot of different explanations about what this possibly could look like, but I believe it's simply going to be this. Somehow God is going to take a compilation of all the things that you have done in his name, all the works that you have done in your life, and he is going to put them in a fire. And it seems like the, the glaring eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, like a laser beam, are going to burn up the things that you've done. And after that fire is extinguished, what will be left? Well, you know, if you try to burn gold, silver, precious stones, those things don't burn. But if you burn wood, hay, stubble, what do you have left? you got a pile of ashes, right? So the question for you this morning is, at the end of your day, will you be standing knee-deep in a pile of ashes, or will your foundation be gold, silver, and precious stones? Which one is it going to be? I want you to notice Paul continues here in verse number two. He says this, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Now remember who Paul's talking to. He's talking to his son, Timothy. His, his preacher boy, Timothy. He says, Timothy, preach the word. What is preaching? Preaching is taking a truth of God's word and it's declaring it. It's heralding, heralding it out. It's, it's proclaiming. That's what that word there in the Greek means. It means to simply proclaim, to teach, to shout from the mountaintop the word of God. 
Remember what Jesus did in Matthew chapter number uh, chapter four. And Jesus in Matthew chapter number four began to preach and say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." He preached. Right? But there were times that Jesus not only preached, but he taught. And we'll see that here in a few moments. There's no teaching here, though. Paul says in verse number 2, Timothy, preach the word. In other words, challenge people to turn their life around right now. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. If someone says, I'm going to get up and teach you something, they are aiming to give you intellectual knowledge that will help you in your mind learn more about something. Preaching takes the truth of God's word, and yes, we talk through truth, but we also seek to apply it to your heart. Where you say, deep down inside, through the Holy Spirit's help, I realize that I've sinned against God. I realize that my life, I'm building a foundation that's going to be burned up one day. And I challenge you, through the power of God's Holy Spirit, to turn your life around before it's too late. That's what preaching is. And so Paul says, Timothy, in verse number two, preach the word. Preach with authority. Proclaim the gospel. He says, be instant in season and out of season. Think about the word instant. It means to, be, to, to carry on. It means to stick to it, to not give up. Um, the word in season means, in the Greek there, it means seasonability. So, don't give up. Preach the word of God. When you have opportunities to do so, preach the word of God in season and out of season. The word out of season just simply means when it's unseasonable. So you got a seasonable time to preach and an unseasonable time to preach. It sounds like to me, Timothy, you're not supposed to stop preaching, right? There's no time that you are to not preach. And so there may be what it seems like a good time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you say, well, we're going to have a chili cook-off and we're going to have people that will be here next week. That'd be a great time to invite friends to church. It would be. But you know, if God puts you on an airplane next to somebody, maybe that would be a good time to talk to them about the gospel. Maybe your car breaks down on the side of the road and the Good Samaritan stops to help you. And as they're sitting there talking to you while you're waiting for the tow truck to come, maybe that's a season that you say, well, I'm not in church right now. I don't know if I should share the gospel. Yes, instant in season and out of season. Look for opportunities. Sometimes we have a planned opportunity to share the gospel. And sometimes somebody just simply asks a question. Why do you do that? Why do you go to church faithfully? Why, why, why? And then that's a season that may be out of season, right? But it's a time for you to share the gospel. In other words, be ready for any opportunity that comes your way to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But Paul says, not only, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season, but reprove, rebuke, exhort. Three words there. I want to give them to you. First of all, the word reprove simply means to convict. Um, generally with a, a suggestion of shame of the person convicted. i got to tell you this, this is something that I don't enjoy doing. I'd rather give somebody a hug and tell them it's going to be okay, right? Everything's going to work out. And sometimes, though, God simply wants you to know how serious your sin is. Maybe there's someone that you loved in your life, that, or you love in your life, that's involved in sin right now. Maybe there's a relationship that's just not right. And you know that you have to confront that person and you have to talk to them, but you know that that confrontation could cause a lot of problems. And you don't want to do it and you don't do it. Well, that's not reproving. There is a time in the life of a Christian where you have to simply say, I'm going to do what God calls me to do because that's the right thing to do. It's not a comfortable thing to do, but you need to do it. The false prophets in the Old Testament in Jeremiah's day, that's exactly what they were doing. They were not confronting sin. In Lamentations chapter 2, verse number 14, way back in the Old Testament, the prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee, 
and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment is basically what it is saying there. And so what Paul is telling us here in this passage is, or, sorry, what, in the Old Testament, there were false prophets that would come and they would cover over their sin and they would tell the people of Israel, y'all are fine, don't worry about it, God's not going to judge you. But God is concerned that people are not deceived into thinking that they're going to get away with their sins. You know what the best way to confront someone in love is? Is with the word of God. This is what the Bible says. Why? Because remember in John, or first, second Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. It's that same word there that we see in verse number 2, for reproof. So the best thing that you can do is if you see a brother or sister in Christ that is erring from the faith, is to take the Bible and say, this is what God's word says. And oftentimes when you bring God's word to someone and you show them what the Bible says about the way that they're living their life, many times people will repent of their sin and they will say, yes, you're right, I'm going to change. But other times, that person may not repent. And there are times that you need to speak up. Whether or not that person changes, it's not up to you. If they do change, you need to respond in forgiveness. Say, absolutely, I forgive you for the way you've lived your life. But you still have a responsibility biblically, Paul says, Timothy, reprove. Not only reprove them, but the next word there in that text is the word exhort. It's the Greek word where we get the, our word parakleto. It's the, maybe you've heard that before. It, it's, it's the terminology that's used for the Holy Spirit, the word comforter. And so there is a time that we are to preach, yes. But there's another time that we as Christians are to come alongside someone to encourage, to comfort. The word there is used in the New Testament many times to beg or to appeal. Uh, like what Paul says in second, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 11. Here's a good use of it. He says, As you know how we are exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. And so that's the loving heart of a good father. He comforts his children. Peter wrote it this way. He said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrim, pilgrims, abstain, uh, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The word beseech there is that same idea there. It carries with it the idea of bringing people alongside and comforting them. And then Paul says at the end of verse number two, he says, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Long-suffering means patience. It means endurance. Have you ever met somebody that just does not change for whatever reason? They refuse to change? Paul says when you meet someone like that, just don't write them off, right? Have patience with them. And sometimes a patient life will be a forever life. You've got to deal with that for the rest of your life. That's the, the hand that God has dealt to you. And that's what Paul says, Timothy, you're a pastor in the church. You can't just get mad at somebody and kick them out of the church because you're impatient with them. You've got to deal with them. And if you're in a marriage right now where you say, my husband always leaves the toilet seat up, or he never puts the toothpaste cap back on right, or maybe it's something a little bit more serious than that, right? And you're saying, I don't know if I can continue to put up with this foolishness. I don't know if I can put up with it. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you're to have that long-suffering attitude, that patient attitude towards difficult people in your life. Learn to be patient with them. I have to confess, though, that I have a difficult time being patient with idiots. I just do. That's just me personally. Maybe that's not you, but I do. And so this is something that God is working on my life over, and I pray that God will continue to do so. And he, yeah, he has been lately in some different areas teaching me patience. Not with you. I'm not calling you idiots. But with different things in my life, God is teaching me patience, and uh, he's working me over, so to speak. We're never finished, right? We are always a work in progress until we take our last breath. And I'm thankful for the patience of God with me. Maybe you've heard of missionary Amy Carmichael before. 
but she was a missionary who served the Lord. And she said this. She said, and, and if, if, if dealing with one who does not respond, um, I weary of the strain and slip from under the burden, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I have not the patience of my Savior with souls who grow slowly, if I know little of travail till Christ be fully formed in them, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I avoid being plowed under with all that such plowing entails of rough handling, isolation, uncongenial situations, strange tests, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Can I just remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that when you have difficult people in your life, think about all that Jesus did and what he did for a difficult person like you. I want you to notice our text here. Paul says, not only are we to exhort with all long-suffering, but he uses the word doctrine. The word doctrine there simply means teaching, right? There is a time for someone to say, yes, a pastor to proclaim, thus saith the word of the Lord. But people don't grow if all they hear are rebukes. People need to be fed. And that's what Jesus told Peter, remember, in John 21? Peter said, or Jesus said, Peter, feed my sheep. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 3, I want you to see what it says. For the time will come that they will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. All right, we've already established the fact in verse number 1 that Timothy was to be instant in season and out of season, in good times and bad times. And this, in verses 3 and 4, this was going to be a bad time in the ministry. Because they, verse 3 says, they will not endure sound doctrine. There is healthy teaching and then there is unhealthy teaching. And I hate to say that, but we are in the same days as Timothy was there at the church at Ephesus. Paul is talking about the content of the teaching. Not just the way that it's being presented, but correct doctrine. Teaching the orthodox truths of Christianity in a way that people don't feel like they have to endure torture. Now, Paul isn't talking about poorly done teaching here, but um, he, he's saying that there is coming a day in which people will not want to listen to any kind of healthy teaching. Now, I don't want to name names, but there are a lot of unhealthy teachers and preachers in the United States of America today. A lot of them, you turn on TBN, or you turn on some of the Christian radio or television stations, and there they are, and they're in their huge palaces, and they're raking in a lot of money, and they're selling their books, and they're telling you how God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and you buy my book, and you'll have the spiritual secrets for success, and they are... They are tickling the ears of the people, and they are not pointing them to the truths of God's word. Verse number three says, But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. The, the real motive in deciding what people want to listen to or not is lust. They, they desire more things. And so a lot of times you'll have a pastor who says, Well, I'm going to tell the people what they want to hear, so that way I'll have more people that will come to my church. Beloved, the Bible does not change. There are some things in the Word of God that are uncomfortable. God's Word will step on your toes from time to time. And there must be a conviction in the heart of God's people that we are not going to live for tickling the ears of our neighbors who are involved in sin. That when we see someone in our life that's not walking with God, that we're not going to be like everyone else out there and tell them what they want to hear and everything's going to be okay. No, we're going to say, this is what the Bible says Please, please, please bring your life into alignment with the principles of God's word. I can't help but think of the prosperity teachers today. Forbes, I think it was last week, Forbes magazine came out with a list 
of the wealthiest preachers in the world. Now, there were some that were in Nigeria and I think one other African country, but I think a majority of them were in the United States. The fact that there's a list of the wealthiest preachers in the world tells you that we're way off today, isn't it? I mean, we are just so far gone from what we ought to be doing, preaching the word of God. It says in verse number four that they shall turn away their ears from from the truth. There's an old evangelist, his name was Wilbur Chapman. He told the story of a preacher friend who delivered a powerful sermon on the subject of sin. How many of you would like to, if I said, hey, come on 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 Sunday, we're going to be talking about sin. "Ah, Maybe I'll stay, I'll be sick this Sunday, right? But he preached a message on sin. And after the service was over, one of the church members confronted the pastor in his office. And he said, pastor, can I just give you some advice? He said, we don't want you to talk as openly as you did about a man's guilt and man's corruption. Because if our boys and our girls hear you discussing that subject, they will more easily become sinners. Call it a mistake, if you will, but don't speak so plainly about sin. The pastor removed a small little bottle from his desk, and he showed it to the man. You see this label, he said? It says strychnine, I think is how you pronounce it. It's rat poison, essentially, is what it is. He said, you see this label? And underneath the label, in bold lead, uh, red letters, there was the word poison. He said, what you are asking me to do would be to change the label on this bottle. Suppose the pastor said, I were to write over the word poison, peppermint. And someone who doesn't know what strychnine is would look at that and say, strychnine, peppermint. Oh, okay, it must be something that is good. And they might swallow that rat poison and become very ill. The milder the label, the more dangerous the poison. We as Christians must speak the truth. Even if it costs us, even if it hurts. Because verse number four says, and they shall turn away from their ears from the truth and be turned into fables. The word turned there means to um, dislocate a limb. And so here's the idea there that people are going to, in a very quick way, revolt against what is the truth and they are going to get out of the way of hearing what the gospel, what the Bible says. I think it's interesting the word turned there is only found three or four other times in the New Testament. And every single time, it's found when Timothy writes a letter to one of his preacher boys. One to Titus and, and, and two to Timothy. And all, four of the, all three of the letters that Paul wrote where he uses this phraseology were written after the year AD 60. Say, what's the big deal about that? I believe that Peter and Paul, as they were writing their letters to the churches, they understood that there were myths, there were false fables that were creeping into the church. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 16, Paul says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. In other words, in Paul's day, there were, in the latter part of the ministry, there were false gospels that were creeping into the church. Peter knew about those, Paul knew about those, and they were, there were, even, they were claiming to be inspired. Maybe you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas before. There's the Gospel of Barnabas. There's a few other so-called Gospels that are out there. And their writings began to circulate amongst the church. And Peter and Paul flatly said that these are myths. Even today, there are scholars out there and fiction writers like Dan Brown who want to look at these things and try to bring them back into the church. But I want you to see what verse number 5 says. Timothy, there there are fables out there But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. The word watch there, it says, but watch thou in all things. The word watch there means to be sober. 
It's the opposite of being drunk, right? If you are drunk, you don't have control of your faculties. Paul says, Timothy, rather than being drunk with wine, right, be filled with the Spirit of God to be sober. So Paul says, watch, endure afflictions. Now, don't forget where Paul is when he wrote this letter. Remember I told you, as we began our time together, Paul, in just a few moments, is going to be let outside of this Mamertine prison, and his head is going to meet the chopping block. It's going to, his head is going to be severed from his body. And so Paul says in verse number 5, endure afflictions as he's in the midst of this jail cell. And then he says, Timothy, not only do the work of, not only endure afflictions, but do the work of an evangelist. The word evangelist there in the Greek means a bringer of good tidings. Sometimes uh, someone will come to the church and say, I'm an evangelist. And I, I believe in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about how God gave to the church some evangelists. And, and I understand that title for a person, someone that um, has been gifted by the Spirit of God to preach the gospel. Uh, there's only one person in the Bible who had the title evangelist, and that was Philip. Philip was one of the early deacons in the, in the church. And he was given the title of an evangelist because he couldn't keep his mouth quiet from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went to Samaria and he would lead a great revival amongst the Samaritans in Acts chapter number 8. And then he would go on to Ethiopia. He led an Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. Remember that story in Acts chapter 9? And after the Ethiopian eunuch got saved, there were many people in Africa that came to know Christ as their Savior. And so you have the gift of an evangelist. And Paul says, though, Timothy, you're a pastor. So you may not have the title of an evangelist, so to speak, but you have to do the work of an evangelist. Can I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that every person in this room has been called by God to do the work of an evangelist. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You say, well, I can't go into all the world. How am I, at my advanced years, supposed to go to China? How can I go to Indonesia, like the Ewing family, who's going to be with us next week? How can I go to these different places around the world and preach the gospel? If I'm in Leesburg, Virginia, you can't. But we can help others go in our stead. That's why we love missionaries at our church. That's why we support them all around the world, doing our part to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We have the responsibility. And so we don't have a record of Timothy leading a large revival meeting and people getting saved. All we know about Timothy is that he was Paul's helper. And yet Paul says in verse number 5, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And then in verse 5 he says, make full proof of thy ministry. In other words, if you say that God's called you to be a pastor, there ought to be evidence that backs that up. You know, that's one of the reasons why if you, wanted, if you came to me and said, I believe God wants me to go into the ministry, I'd say to you, well, first thing you need to do is you need to go to Bible college or you need to go to seminary and you've got to study. And you've got to get involved in the local church and you better serve the Lord. And there has to be work, there has to be proof that this is what God has called you to do. Because if there's no evidence of it, you could very easily fall into the prey or fall into the, pat, the trap of being like those false teachers that are out there who really don't, aren't called by God. Maybe they were called back in the day by their mama or their daddy or somebody like that. But we don't need any um, mama-called preachers, right? We need some God-called preachers. And that's what Paul says there in verse number 5. Make full proof of thy ministry. Well, at the beginning of the message today, I told you of a couple of people who lived a life of regret at the very end, right? Napoleon and Gandhi. I want to close this morning with the story of someone who died the other way. It was the year 1904, a man by the name of William Borden. Anyone ever heard of the Borden Dairy Company? It's out, especially in the Midwest, Chicago area. The Borden family is very famous. And after high school graduation, William Borden, who was the heir to the Borden estate, 
He was given a gift by his parents, a cruise around the world. I've seen those cruises. I thought that would be a cool thing to do. You know, go for 60 days all around the world, ports all over the place. That's what he got to do in 1904. He traveled the world. And while traveling through the Far East, he became burdened by the sight of people who had an idolatrous worship system who did not know Jesus Christ. And so as he was there on the boat, the Holy Spirit of God began to work in William's heart, and God called William to be a missionary. He forsook all of the, and the money that he had, right? He had all of this wealth, all of this opportunity laying in front of him, but he decided that he wanted to go and serve God and be a missionary and reach these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Upon returning to home, he went and spent four years at Yale University studying, instead of business, theology. And then he went on to Princeton Seminary to prepare to serve the Lord. When at last he was done school... He turned to the back of his Bible and wrote on the last page of the Bible these words, No reserves. That simply meant that he was holding nothing back for God. That he would give everything to God. No reserves. Well, uh, it was his ministry to go and reach the, the, the world with the gospel. And so as he started preparing for going and serving the Lord, he started giving away all of his earthly possessions to the tunes of millions of dollars. His family said, well, you need to stay at home and run the dairy business. And he told his family, no, I can't do it. I've been called by God to be a missionary. And so he gave away millions of dollars and he emptied himself to the point that he could say, I have no reserves. I have nothing to go back to. And so as he was preparing to leave for the mission field, he took his Bible and he wrote in the back of the Bible underneath the words where he had no reserves, he wrote the words, no retreat. In other words, he was never going back. He was going to go forward with the plan that God gave him to be a missionary. And on his way to China, where he wanted to witness to the Muslims that were there, he contracted cerebral meningitis, and he died within a month. The world grieved. Here's an heir to the Borden family estate. At 25 years old, he died. It was written in the papers, what a waste. If this man had stayed in America... He could have done so much good with the money that he had. Well, a friend friend found his personal effects, and on opening his Bible, he saw the very back of his Bible, the words, no reserves. And below it were written the words, no retreats. And the final entry that William Borden had made, probably just before he died on that ship, was these two words, no regrets. Here he was, living his life in such a way He gave everything up to serve God, and yes, he died. And the outside world might say he wasted his life. He died at 25, but he died with no regrets. You know why? Because he gave everything to Jesus Christ. We live in Loudoun County, right? We live in probably one of the most wealthiest places in the world. And we have so many creature comforts, and we have so much. What are you willing to give up for the cause of the gospel? Paul was writing from a sewer pit. Timothy, hey, endure. Timothy, don't forsake. Timothy, endure persecutions. What are you willing to do for the cause of the gospel? I ask you, I plead with you to go and search your heart this week. Do a spiritual inventory of the things that God has given to you. I want you at the end of your day to be able to say like the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, maybe this morning I'm speaking to you and you never heard of this Jesus Christ before. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Can I say this morning that if you do not know Christ, on that judgment day, you will stand before him 
and you will not be able to say, I have no regrets. Oh, you're going to have regrets that are immeasurable. But if you know Jesus, if you come to him by faith today, you can learn to live a life of no regrets. Maybe you look back at the past years of your life and you say, you know, I'm not proud of the way I lived when I was a teenager. I'm not proud of the things I did in my 20s, my 30s, early on in my life. But I've come to faith in Christ and God is growing me. Can I tell you, when you stand before God, God is going to hold you to account for the truth of the knowledge that he's given to you. The, the, the way you respond to the Holy Spirit going forward, you can live a life in such a way that you say from this moment on, October 24th, 2021, I'm going to write in the back of my Bible, no regrets. That way when I finish my life, I want to have that testimony be said at my funeral. So-and-so lived his life with no retreat, no reserve, and no regrets. That would be an amazing thing for us to do, to empty ourselves and to serve God. Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Whether you believe it or not, my friend, Jesus is coming back. Are you ready to serve him? Is your all on the altar today? Let's pray. Father, my prayer today is that we would live a life of no regrets. That we would come to the end of our days and we would say, like the Apostle Paul, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord himself will give me at that day. Oh, Father, I pray that Faithway Baptist Church would be filled with people who receive that crown of righteousness from you. I know in our mind, Lord, it's hard to imagine what that will be like, but we know the reality that when we take our last breath, to be absent from the body is to be present with you. And I pray that we would finish our course with joy. With our heads bowed this morning and our eyes closed, can I just encourage you to think about the words that I've just said, that I preached to you from God's word? If you're building a foundation right now, my friend, that is made out of wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to burn one day. Perhaps it's time for us to do a spiritual inventory and even a physical inventory of the things that we have. And like William Borden, maybe God's calling you to give. Maybe God's calling you to go. Maybe God's saying, I want you to serve me and preach the gospel. Whatever God has worked in your heart about this morning, would you respond to him now? In the quietness of this moment, take some time and talk to God. pray that this week, as we walk out these doors, we go into a world that is dark, it's dying, it's confused, and there is no light, like Gandhi said. But Lord, we thank you that we have the light. It's Jesus Christ. And may we be bold, like Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. May we rebuke, reprove, exhort, encourage others this week. I pray that we would fulfill the mission that you've called us to and not just live for today, but live for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the podcast from Faithway Baptist Church today. 
Our prayer is as God's word goes forth, it will speak to your heart and to the lives of people all around the world. If God has used this message in your life today, please feel free to reach out to us, and we'd love to hear from you. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with God, please let us know.